Welcome to an episode of I Am Black History, Our Voices, Our Stories, brought to you by In the Black Canada and Deep Vision Media. I'm your host, Donna Paris, coming to you from Toronto, and I want to acknowledge that the land I am settled on today is a traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. I also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13, signed with the Mississaugas of the Credit, and the Warriors Treaty, signed with multiple Mississaugas and Chippewa tribes. I give gratitude and thanks. I'm here today with Deborah Ann Paris Perry. She was born in Manitoba on February 13, 1955, but spent most of her life living in Nova Scotia. Deborah has had 24 siblings. She also has had three children, one of which unfortunately passed away recently from a heart attack. Deborah now works for the YWCA Halifax for a program called NSTAY, Nova Scotia's Answer to Human Trafficking. She works with women and children, female and male, and trans who are coming back from being trafficked. Welcome, Deborah. One R. Paris and two R. Perry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I should say at the beginning that Deborah and I are related, although we have never met. I posted a picture of my maternal grandfather, Percy Jackson, on a group, and Deborah commented on it. Turns out her paternal grandmother was my Aunt Nina. And if you've been following my podcast, you would have heard Leonard Paris talk about his maternal grandmother, who was the same Aunt Nina. So what can you tell me about your ancestors on both sides of your family? Well, on dad's side, of course, they're the same ancestors as you. Right. My understanding is that Uncle Noble, who is Cecil Paris and those guys' dad, and my grandfather were brothers. They were working somewhere down in Sheet Harbor. That's where he met my grandmother. And then they came to Truro. But. From what I understand, going far back from the little bit of research I could do, that their family was originally from Barbados, and they came here for work. Okay, and ended up in Sheet Harbor. Yeah, ended up in Sheet Harbor doing that farming stuff like they get the guys all doing down the valley now. And in Ontario, you know, like they were hired farmhands. They ended up getting somehow property in Truro between the two brothers because the old homestead was there first okay. and then the two sons my grandfather and my uncle noble ended up with that property there and the jacksons there's a Mi'kmaq component in there from the reserve number 37 which was in sheet harbor and then my dad was working on the trains and he met my mom and my mom is cree from a place called Wabasca, Alberta. We're Big Stone Cree from about three hours away from Edmonton. Okay. How yeah. is it that your dad happened to be there, that they met each other? Mom had got out of the residential school because she spent from the age of five until about 15 or 16 at the residential school. She found a job in, in Winnipeg, and then dad just happened to meet her in Winnipeg. All I remember is my mom saying he was the first black man I ever saw and he was beautiful and I had to have him. Because <laughs> <laughs> at that time in the 50s, there wasn't a lot of 
black presence in the Western provinces was mostly native and white out there, right? Right. Mm. How does it that you came to live in Truro? Well, there's 150 stories, but as you know, most black people, what happens in the home stays in the home. Um, some of them aren't so wonderful. I believe that my dad at first brought my mom home with him. My dad had some issues. Him and my mom went through some marital stuff. And then she left. She tried to bring us here. But then Reverend Fairfax got involved when my mom went to court and for custody and all that kind of stuff. For me, my sister Diana and my brother Clyde. Okay. But she didn't win the custody. So we were put in the custody of Reverend Fairfax. And he took us to the colored home in Dartmouth. We went to the colored home and then my dad begged his family, you know, I can't leave my kids there. And so I went to live with my grandmother, your Aunt Nina. Mm -hmm. My sister Diane went to live in New Glasgow with one of my father's brothers. And my mother kept custody of my youngest brother, Clyde. And do you remember all of this happening? Oh, yes. Yes, I remember. I remember the colored home. I just remember it wasn't a very nice place. And I remember they didn't treat you very well over there. My sister was up in the baby room because she was quite young. And they didn't usually want us older kids to go up there. I remember going to my grandmoms. They had said that my mom had died. I don't know why, but I did question my grandmother later. The story that came from my dad was that my mom didn't want us, which was not true. Their mom doesn't want them. I don't have any place to take them. You guys have to help me. All that my grandmother knew was what my dad told her at the time. I didn't even really notice it much until one day I started Douglas Street School in Truro. And we were doing something. One of the kids said, are your parents coming? Like your mom and your dad. And I said, I don't have a mom. And I said, I have a grandmother and a dad. Right? Because that was my parents. That was my mom and my dad. I remembered asking what had happened to my mother. And they said that my mother had died in a car accident or something. And when I asked my grandmother about it years later, after I met my mom and didn't speak to her for a little while, because I was very upset. Why did you tell me that? She said, because I thought it was easier to hear that than to hear that your mother didn't want to. Because I had discussed this with my mom, like what really happened? How did I end up in the care of dad's family? And she was pretty open and honest about most of it. Mm -hmm. So I'm very blessed in that way that I get to ponder all that stuff. So how did you um, finally connect up with her? How did that happen? That you showed up one day, just out of the blue. She came to my, I guess I can say it now, because Aunt Bai is no longer with us. Aunt Bai was the wife of my father's oldest brother, which was Thomas Paris, and they called him Gin. My mother showed up there, and she tried to hug me. And to me, my mom's a very fair-skinned Native woman. So I remember saying to my aunt, why is that white woman crying, and why is she trying to hug me? <laughs> my aunt said, no, that's not a white woman, Deb. That's your mom, right? She's Native. And I was like, no, it's not. My mom died. So she said, don't tell your grandmother I let this happen. So then I went up the hill, which wasn't far from my aunt, because we lived at the top of the hill. We lived at 596 Young, which was right at the top. Big pink house. A lot of people remember Aunt Mona's big pink house. I do. And I packed my stuff. I was trying to pack my stuff in bags, and the bags kept tearing. And she was like, girl, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going to Halifax with my dead mother. 
and I left that day and I never went back. How old were you then? Nine. Oh my goodness. And it took me a long time to think about why I had been told what I was told and took me a long time to deal with that and not be angry and took mm -hmm. a long time. So I came to live with mom when I was about nine. By that time, well, he wasn't a husband, but a new live-in guy, I guess, a common law husband right. who really had not expected her to come with three kids. When he met her, she only had one child and now she had two and a possibility of three. I ended up starting to get in a lot of trouble. I was a very angry and defiant kid. I really was. I didn't like anybody. And I was fighting every day going to school because to the black girls, I was this high yellow girl that thought she was better than them because I had good hair. I wish some of them had this hair and seen that it's not good hair. <laughs> <laughs> and then to my, the native family that I started to meet, I was what they called at that time a slap me five Indian because at one time, you know, that was a greeting for black people, you know, fist bump now or slap hands or whatever. So they called me a slap me five Indian, which was better than being the five dollar Indian, which was kind of like the ones that were mixed with white, but still not accepted in that group either. And I didn't really meet mom's Cree family because they were still all over West, but I did start to meet Mi'kmaq people here in, in the city. I ended up going to the Nova Scotia School for Girls at about 10, just because I wouldn't go to school. And I, Children's Aid was still involved with me. So at that time, it was against the law not to go to school, right? So I wouldn't go. And I, when I went to court, the judge said, if you don't go to school, you're going to go to this place. And I said, well, send me now because I'm not going to school. But that's the kind of kid I was. I was very defiant, very mouthy. And not that anybody could tell that of me today. <laughs> that's the kind of kid I was. I said, well, if you're going to send me, you know, don't hang this over my head. If you're going to send me, send me, which they did. Well, on the books, I was there. So I was 16, but I wasn't there. But on the books, I was there. Okay. Um, I used to run away every chance like that. I just, however, I could run away. I ran away in nightgowns. I ran away and stole clothes off other people's clotheslines and ran away. I just ran away every opportunity I got. And they told me that I had to write an apology letter to them for running away. And I said, no, because I will run away from this place every chance I got. And I was pretty smart. I just spent more time on the road than I ever did in that place. Where would you run to? Well, I knew I couldn't run to grandmother and those guys because I figured they would bring me back. So the first time I ran away, I got as far as Montreal. My Aunt Doris, who's married to my dad's brother, they're half pennies. Her sister lived in Montreal. So I ended up at her house because I was panhandling on the streets. Her name was Avis. Avis, I think. Avis Halfkenny. And then she invited me to her house for dinner. And I'm sitting there and I eat my food. And then Daddy showed up and then the police showed up. So they brought me back. So then the next time I ran, I went to Montreal, but I didn't go there. One of my other friends had a job doing dancing all over Quebec. And she said, and they don't ask for ID or nothing yet. So I said, okay. So then I ran away again and ended up dancing, go-go dancing all over Quebec. Winnegan, Chicoutimi, Grand Mare, Trois-Rivières. was all over those places, all by myself. 
because they just sent one dancer at a time to go to these little places. And then I stayed in Montreal at my Aunt Winnie, which was my grandmother's sister. I stayed with her and my hearing-impaired uncle. I think his name is either Alan or Eddie. Yeah, so I stayed there with them. I ended up getting involved in a whole bunch of other stuff that comes with being a street kid. You know, I got involved with the drugs and prostitution and all that kind of stuff. And that went on for years. I got pregnant with my first child when I was 17. So I came home. I knew that I needed help with my kids. So I came home, went to my mother's. She fought with her still common law guy to take me in. And they did. And uh, then after I had the baby, I went back to being that wild kid again. But I was very blessed because my mom was willing to look after my daughter for me. But I think I was three weeks out of the hospital and I took off again. I took off to Moncton, right? So when I got pregnant again, 14 months later, my son's father, who's from North Preston, said, I want to take my little boy for the weekend. And I said, okay. And he would never bring him back. I had to go to court and everything. But because his parents stepped in and said that they would look after him, he ended up in the custody of them. So, I mean, I always still had contact and I could visit whenever I wanted and everything. It was not for 10 years that my last son was born. There's 10 years between my kids. It's two decades of children. <laughs> then I got my tubes done. After the surgery, I got pregnant. Oh, wow. Well, they said it had something to do with my keloid skin or something, which is, you know, common within uh, black people. Although I had them cut and burnt, there must have been a little tiny hole there somewhere. And I thought, well, you know what? If this kid fought through all that scar tissue to get here, mm -hmm. then I'm going to have it. And what's your relationship with the children today? Well, my youngest one is the one that passed away. He was only 37. He's been gone about six months now. So it's still really, really raw for me. Um, I get along well with my other two children. I mean, I'm I'm amazed that we get along as well as we do because, you know, like a lot of times, you know, those things happen in life and children and parents get estranged. But my oldest boy calls me every day around 11, 11 o'clock. He lives in Alberta, but he calls me every day because my youngest one always did. So he said, I have to pick up for my brother. I have to make sure to give you a call every day. And then my daughter, I believe you got to spoke with my daughter, Tanya, the artist. Yes. So her and I talk a lot, and her boys and I are very close, very blessed. And my mom's still with us. She's 91, you know. I'm really, really happy that even through all the trials and tribulations and the mistakes and all of that kind of stuff, I still have a very beautiful bond with my children and also their children. Nice. Could have went a totally different way. I decided at 59 years old, I had enough. I just decided I've had enough of this life. It's hard to explain to people, you know, but you don't sleep. You're always wondering who's going to come in your door, if it's the police or whoever. Then you don't know what kind of enemies you made out there on the street. So I got to 59 and I thought, you know what? This isn't even any fun anymore. So I decided that I was going to do something else. I made a couple of other attempts, but not with the dedication that I had with the attempt when I was 59. Mm -hmm. So I went back to school. 
I got uh, my veterinary assistant. Couldn't get a job, though, because every time you fill out a job application, it says, do you have anything for which you have not been pardoned? Once I checked that box, people were like, you know, Deb, we like you and we'd really like to hire you, but this is a full-service veterinary hospital, so we do operations, so we do have drugs here. So we're a little bit uncomfortable with that. And I said, no, I get it. I get it. So I couldn't get a job in the veterinary work, and just one day... There's a place here called In My Own Voice Arts Association, which is a studio. The kids were asked, what would they like? And this was before the YW, what would you like? And of course, every kid wants to be a rapper today. (laughs) So they opened up their own recording studio, and I was asked if I would run the um, UNIAC Center for Community Development, if I thought I could do that. And I said, I will give it a try. I've never done these kind of things, and I'm not, I'm not an academic in the farthest stretch of the word, and I don't like paperwork, and I don't like filing all these things, but I said, I will try my best. So I ended up being there for three years, and when the funding was cut, I was offered the job through the YWCA, and I've been working now, straight job for at least seven years. How has your life helped you in the job that you do? Well, my kids love me. I see it all the time because I can be for real with them. I'm not a social worker. I was asked if I wanted to be a social worker between the Aboriginal and the Black education people. They were going to send me to go to the School of Social Work and get my degree, and it wouldn't have cost me any money at all. They were willing to cover it all. But then I started hearing about policies and procedures and disclosure policies and all these things. And I thought, I don't want to be that restricted in my work. Like when I go to talk to these kids and they tell me what has happened to them, I can say, I I believe you because I know what happened to me. And I've always been that way. And when I talk about drugs and addiction, I let them know, you know, I spent 30 years, 40 years out there on those streets doing intravenous drugs and crack and whatever else came my way. You know, I can be open with them when they're telling me the horror stories of the different things that happened to them through the traffickers. Uh, Let me show you something. These are my scars from the heated up coat hanger. And because I'm able to do that, it builds a big trust with the kids. Also because I remember as a kid, if your crisis didn't happen nine to five, Monday to Friday, you were shit out of luck. Mm -hmm. There was no one to call if you were you know, someplace really scary and unsafe on a Sunday night because nobody answered their phones. So they know that my phone is on 24 hours a day. My boss doesn't ask that of me. She said, I could never ask that of you. But like I tell the kids, if it's an emergency, I don't do rescues. I will call 911 if you need it. I can't do rescues. I can't take that chance for either of us because we do know that this is a billion-dollar business. So, you know, one little me is not going to matter if I'm interrupting their business. So I don't do that. But my phone is on 24 hours a day. And my kids are great. I've only ever once had to say, now, look, this could have waited till Monday, right? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, Deb. But And I said, you know what? It's okay. But before you call me three in the morning, make sure it's not something that can be done on Monday. And if it isn't, then I will work with you the best way I can to help you in that situation. Because I do have a really pretty good relationship with the police. 
you know, they have their own agenda and I know that, and that's always in my mind. They want numbers. My thing is just to help the kids to adjust back to living what's considered, I guess, a normal life. You know, I never forget that, but I can never say that I've not called on the police officers that I do have to associate with, that they have not responded really, really quickly. If they didn't know, they would respond with, I don't know what to do, Deb. What do you think is the best way to go about this? And take my advice. So I've been very blessed with that. When you're in the police, there's two people. There's perpetrators and there's victims. So because prostitution was against the law, they fell under more of the perpetrators than the victims. And now they're starting to see that, you know, I would say 90% of the perpetrators at one time were victims because what little girl grows up and says, when I grow up, I want to be a prostitute. Obviously, it's a learned behavior. It wouldn't have been something that I would have ever chosen for myself if I hadn't already been placed there because of circumstance, right? I have to say that I still say there was times when I made a choice to be there the easiest way to explain it was it's like picking a meal from the shittiest buffet in the world. Well said, well said. You were talking about your mom and your mom had been in a residential school. What has she shared with you about that that you can talk about? Well, my mom doesn't share a whole lot. Um, She did share that she was beaten. She did share that one of the disciplines for that the sisters would make her do would be to kneel on rice to pray for hours and hours. And eventually the rice would just go into your knees and into your skin. She shared the shaming that if you were a little kid and you peed the bed, they would make you walk around with a pissy diaper over yourself all day. Then my uncle shared a lot more, her brother, because her whole family ended up in the residential school. He talked more about sexual abuse and if not it happening to him but witnessing it and those things I know because those things all happened to me in the Nova Scotia school for girls so I never had to question what was truth or not because I see when they just hire people that don't have any kind of qualification to take care of the throwaway kids and that's who we are we're the throwaway kids you know They don't really take the time to find out what people are doing to us. Now, for some of the places, you have to have a social work degree. But then other ones, they'll just hire whoever will work for the money that they offer. And that's what they do. Imagine if you'd had someone like you when you were going through all of what you went through. I think it would have made a lot of a difference. A lot of difference. I really do. I didn't have anyone like me. I couldn't find anyone like me. I was a systems kid, so they sent me to a psychiatrist who had no idea what was going on. Like, you know, you're you're not crazy because you shoplift. <laughs> so, and they put me on medications, which I'm glad I didn't take. I'm a firm believer in in the creator and stuff like that. I'm a believer that the reason that I was given all these trials, the reason that I was given this pain that happened to me and stuff like that was to make me who I am today and be able to be that support person that the kids say, well, she knows what I'm talking about. I mean, if I could have done it another way, maybe. (laughs) I get asked all the time, if you could have changed things, would you? And I said, well, you know what? We can't change things. So I'm not even thinking about that. 
I don't know if that would have made a difference in my life. I'm not even sure. I can assume maybe it would. I kind of always wish for the day that I could say, I don't think I would change anything because if I change anything at all, that would change who I am today. Right. And I love me today. You know, some days I love me a little less than other days, but, but <laughs> generally I do love me today. And I think, you know, all those pains and all those trials, I've taken those and made them so that they're actually lessons. I think that's what our time on this earth is, that we're lifelong students mm-hmm. and we get lessons. And some lessons you learn easy and some lessons you have to get a slap in the head. <laughs> and I was... Like I said, one of those hard-hit divine kids. You know, when you say to your own children, don't touch that, you'll burn your fingers. For one kid, that's all it takes. For another kid, they got to burn their fingers five times before they, <laughs> before they get it. Well, I was that five-time, maybe even ten-time finger burner. <laughs> Did you think you were ever going to live to be the age that you are now? No, I expected to be dead by at least 50. Just because of our family history, that a lot of us die around 50s. But I also have buried a lot of my friends between the being on the streets or between drug abuse. I buried a lot of them that didn't make it through. So I always felt like, oh, I'm probably going to die tomorrow anyway, so who cares, right? I'm 66 now. So I always say that was 16 years of gravy so far. The last 16 years haven't always been the greatest, but there's 16 years that I never expected to have anyway. I've been stabbed, I've been shot, I've been strangled, I've been all of those, and I'm still here. And everything that I had to go through in life has brought me to where I am today and enabled me to be able to do what I do because my kids are always saying thank you to me, and I'm always like, No, thank you to you, because you are my reminders of where I've been and where I could so easily go back to, Mm -hmm. and you are the reminders that even though I've gone through a lot, that it was purposeful in a sense that now I'm able to still be here and still be alive and be that person that I probably would have needed when I was a kid, and there just wasn't anybody around at the time. I could be mad all the time if I wanted to be, okay? I'm Aboriginal and Black, so I got all kinds of stuff to be mad about. So I can walk around mad all the time. But who would that hurt, truly? The people that made me mad, the people that hurt me, they don't care. So they're not going to feel it like I will. The only person that's going to hurt, the only person that's going to affect, really, at the end of the day is me. So I just choose not to. You know, I've been able to do that. I was, like I said, a very angry, a very hurt child that wanted to hurt back other people. Mm -hmm. But as I got older, I realized, you know what? Me walking around mad with my guts all in knots doesn't hurt anybody but me. Because half the people don't care and the other half don't even realize this is what's going on with me. So I've got to do better. I've got to learn how to just not be mad all the time which I will still work on. I will always be working on these things. I consider myself to be a lifelong student. My kids teach me stuff. Like my kids that I work with, my own grandchildren, they teach me stuff. When we think that only professionals and academics and psychiatrists and therapists know all that stuff, no, 
that's not it. You learn from everywhere. You learn from kids. You learn from older people. You learn things from everywhere, you know, and I'm willing to learn those things. I remember being that kid that would put my hand on my hip and I would say, how do you know, right? That's the defiantness of me as a teenager. But when my kids do it to me, I'm like, listen, I know because I've been there. That answer seems to be effective for them and myself. Like, I'm sure there's a place for academics. I'm sure there's all places for people with their bachelors of social work. You know what I mean? And I never say that their part of the job is not relevant. But I do say to people, and I say it to the social workers, and don't get mad at me. And the, I know that it takes a village to raise a child. I'm happy to have the help of the academic because there might be something that they know that I don't know. But as far as the true life experience, you know, me being able to open up and say that is so important to me. It's really like none of my kids got any drugs because they all knew I did. Man. I didn't hide it. I did it in an age-appropriate reveal time. None of them get into drugs. I mean, well, they, they all smoke pot, but I don't know if there's anybody today that doesn't smoke weed. But uh, I never liked it. I wish I had, but I never did. If I liked it, I would have saved a bunch of money. But, <laughs> you know, I had to go to the connoisseur of drugs, you know what I mean? Right. Because I never liked weed. But they all say to me, Mom, it's because of your addiction that we never touched it. We looked at the fact that we knew what a strong woman you were. And if this shit could kick your ass, we had no chance in the world to fight these things because we saw it. Today, even if my kids are in their 40s and 50s and they're like, we had no desire. And my daughter said, Mom, it's an awful thing to say in a way that I'm glad you were an addict because you could honestly teach us not to be addicts. Right. And I said to my kids, listen, don't touch it because I already see that you like weed and you like alcohol. So you like mood altering substances. And if you touch anything more than that, you're going to love it, especially this cocaine and these opiates. You're going to love them because you're already predisposed. You got to remember, we come from a family where alcoholism was pretty crazy, mm -hmm. you know, and I do believe that a lot of that stuff comes through that because when my dad had a good day, he had a drink. When he had a bad day, he had a drink, <laughs> you know? So from a very young age, we were taught that. My mom's mom was a really bad alcoholic too. I never saw a photo of her that there wasn't like a whole spread of alcohol on the table. So I think for us, there is within our DNA that predisposition of addiction. You were part of a human library book in 2016. I think it was Wendy Elliott wrote for Saltwire. And right. she said, Paris calls herself an Indigenous Canadian, born of a Black father and a First Nations mother. She fought almost every day growing up. But today, says proudly, the last few years, no one tells me who I am. When no. you were young, did you think of yourself as mixed race girl or as a Black girl? Yes, I was mulatto. Mulatto. That was the word. I was mulatto. It was years before I knew that mostly mulatto meant white and black. The mulatto was actually the gentler word. Most of the time, you just called me half-breed, right? 
later on when I learned that mulatto was usually referred to black and white. And then I started saying, no, I'm not mulatto because I'm not white. My mom is native. Well, at that time, it wasn't native or anything. It was Indian. My mom is an Indian. So no, I'm not mulatto. I just was different. That's all. I was different. I think that's the only word. It was different, you know, because people would say to me and still do, what are you anyway? Because you're not really black. And I'm like, what is really black? Now, when I was uh, dating a Mi'kmaq man and I was living on the reserve in New Brunswick, they just called me the crazy Cree girl. I have always known that, that my mom was native, you know, and I always knew my dad was black because, of course, I lived with grandfather's family, so I knew that. Your daughter, Tanya, she talked about being too black to be native and too native to be black. Yes. So that's been a fight that I've had for my whole life as far as I can remember. And so I tried to give my children enough education that they didn't feel the stuff that I felt, that it was a positive instead of a negative. Wherever I've lived with me and my children, my house is all kinds of African and Aboriginal representation because I thought it was very, very important for them to feel the pride of those two strong resilient people from which they come from because when you get out there you're not going to hear good stuff you're going to hear negative you're going to hear drunken indians you know violent lazy blacks and because of that it allows other people to shape what your life should be mm -hmm. and i never wanted that for my children because i knew what i had went through because of it so i really was important to to teach my kids the pride of what they come from and the pride of, you know, how many people lost their lives just so they could learn to read. So what wisdom would you impart to young Black and First Nations people coming up today? First off, having pride in who you are. I think one of my biggest jobs with our young people is teaching them self-worth. From young They've been told that they're not enough and they're not good enough and they're not as good as. So finding the space in yourself to know, yes, I am worth it. Yes, I am enough. Yes, I am good enough. They give us barriers, but not to let those barriers become a crutch, to let those barriers be something that you will conquer. They put us in this welfare trap on the reserves. It's called rations. They want to give you free money. But it's not free. It comes with other stuff. So if you can stay away from that welfare and those rations, I'm not saying don't take it if you really need to get over the hump. We've made it in a situation where most people wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. You know, we've come through residential schools and slavery and all of those kind of stuff. So we see in our history the strength. And that's what I do. Like, I'm really particular with showing my grandchildren I said who invented the light bulb and they said a black man <laughs> <laughs> no, but I want them to know these things I'm still very mad about black history month and aboriginal month black history is every day native history is every day like white history is they asked me when I was faced with racism at work how would I handle it and I said well I try to look at those times as times to educate. Not that it's up to me to educate. Like, you know, I might go as far as say, look, why don't you just Google it, okay? <laughs> but if it's not rudeness, if it's just ignorance, 
then I try my best to educate. And I think that's what's really important is to to know your history, to learn it, and then teach it, like teach it and teach it and teach it and teach it. Well said, Deborah and Paris Perry. I want to thank you so much, Deb, for being so open and willing to talk so honestly about your struggles and how you have overcome the many challenges in your life. I really appreciate you taking the time. The young people who get to have you will never really know how lucky they are. And I have so enjoyed your laughter. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to check out our website, www.intheblackcanada.ca, to listen to Black Canadians from across this country talk about their experiences and those of their ancestors of being Black in Canada. And if you have a story to tell, contact us through the website or at intheblackcanada at gmail.com. You can catch more episodes of I Am Black History, Our Voices, Our Stories, wherever you get your podcasts. And this podcast was made possible by a grant from the Canada Council for the Arts.